Thanks. It's really an honor and a privilege to be here. I um, am from the South originally and have just moved back to the South about a month ago and somewhat still living out of suitcase. Sometimes I wake up in the morning and go, okay, where am I? Am I, am I still in Oregon or I'm in Alabama or what? But it's great to be here. I've never been to Columbia before. I've never seen the University of South Carolina. I did some work, actually, ironically enough, some storytelling work with um, University of South Carolina, Saukahatchee Leadership Institute, and in, I want to say Allendale. Is that right? There was three cities involved, so I get them mixed up. Hampton, Allendale, and something between those two, So, uh, which was several years ago now, a uh, handful of years ago. Uh, so it's great. I kind of feel like it's through that connection and Melissa Block that uh, Jason and I have got to know each other and have been trading phone calls for a couple of years. And uh, so I'm, I'm honored, privileged, and even surprised that he felt like he heard anything that was valuable enough to bring me here <laughs> in the process because I heard a lot of good stuff from him as well. So uh, when we talk about storytelling, it's really about context. Uh, we're social beings and to start out to do anything uh, almost always involves context which webs of relationships are all embedded in context so whether it's health or whether it's anything you know context almost always comes into being we've kind of been trained to look at things as if Context doesn't matter, so we get these measurements about people and we put them in a, a profile of sorts that seems to be problematic. But, you know, the cause of those problems oftentimes don't stay in those little narrow boundaries, nor do the solutions sometimes as well. So uh, I hope that what you hear is going to be valuable. Um, certainly feel free to ask a question uh, or to say, yeah, you know, I've, I understand that and maybe add to it. Because uh, the more interaction, probably the better this will be. And in putting this together, I I had an aha moment about a week ago, and uh, so I'm always learning. You know, this is evolving as I go, and I'm probably going to be learning stuff as long as I continue to do this kind of work. So let me give you just a little bit of background. <clears throat> I have to credit my dad with, you know, where did these where did this notion come from? You know, what, what was the initial itch that kind of drove me down this direction? And um, I grew up in Birmingham. My dad was a very interesting person. He was politically far left, uh, which in the South, as most of you know, is not that uh, usual for uh, someone who whose religion was on the far right. So he was an evangelical <laughs> and politically liberal. And when I say liberal, way out there. Uh, today, any number of people on the street would call him a socialist. Um, he was the head of his union. He worked for the Birmingham News, and he was a uh, he was in the labor end of typesetting. So I heard management, and the third floor was where he worked, and the fifth floor was where management. I heard those words a lot growing up as a child. And um, along the way, I can't remember what age I was, but it was pretty young. I was trying to wrap my head around this union, labor, and management thing, and how does this work? And uh, I, had, I somehow had the notion that it was 
uh, battling agendas and negotiating agendas and giving up something. What are you going to get? How do we get what we want? Both sides asking that question. So I didn't see a lot of hope in that. I thought, that doesn't sound real fun to me. That sounds like a lot of work and a lot of arguing. And my dad explained it in a different way. He said, if we, and I use the word getting to good, uh, if we have a fundamental belief that getting to good is something that is co-produced by, and I'm putting words in his mouth, he didn't use these words, by a number of different people, management, labor, um, magic can happen. You know, we can, we can figure out things and get to good better than when we have this mindset of getting what we want and what am I going to have to give up in order for them to get what they want type thing, which is a lose-lose scenario. It's small wins, usually big loses in the minds of all. So I was really intrigued by that. <clears throat> I have a feeling that my dad's faith somehow informed that, but he could never verbalize the theological principles behind that uh, idea. I would later go on to study theology and try to figure out where did he get that? Does that is that really in there? Because I don't see people out in the church world doing that either. They're still fighting the culture war as well, or management versus labor, or the right versus the left, and in this kind of win-lose, win-lose, you know, as our best option. So that was kind of <clears throat> the initial conversation that got me interested in communicating across boundaries, and truly communicating meaningfully, as opposed to agenda-driven conversations. And that's a theme that has underpin this whole journey. Um, I would go on and get a master's degree at the University of Alabama uh, later in my life. So I've, I went to school, did poorly in undergrad, uh, worked for a long time, went back to school, worked for a long time, and finally went back to school again. So it's been this kind of stair step of education to get where I am today. Uh, my Ph.D. work was at Portland State, and it was actually in urban planning and development. Uh, and I'm, in, I'm an odd duck in the urban planning community, let me tell you. <laughs> There's a few of us over there talking about stories. And we're just now trying to figure out what does that mean and is it hopeful for urban planning. In much the same way, my dad had kind of set that seed in place. When I was at the University of Alabama, I was interested in... 20th century American culture, and there was this thing called the holistic movement um, that was emerging on the scene, um, health food stores and gurus and yoga and all this, and I'm pretty old, so you, this is common stuff to you guys. This has been around for as long as you guys have probably been alive, but I got interested in that uh, as an alternative to unholism which is this segmental way of thinking about health in a very narrow framework and even dividing it up almost as if it's not even interconnected. And I think that modernity kind of sets us up for this, you know, fragmented specialization type of knowledge stuff. So I studied the holistic movement, and I got really interested in physical medicine, pain, uh, musculoskeletal, and I... Uh, didn't plan when I went to the University of Alabama to get my master's degree 
that it was going to lead me to an applied career. I was thinking of an academic career, but you can't do an academic career with a master's degree. And, it, and I had gotten really enthusiastic about this movement called the holistic movement. So I studied under European osteopaths, under is the name Ida Roth ring a bell with anybody besides me? No? Yes. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who in the in the in this country in the fifties there was this undercurrent. Uh, Ida Roth was one name. Wilhelm Reich, who was a student of Freud, had come from Germany. He actually got kicked out of Germany and landed here. And he would talk about that it was not psychosomatic. It was more somatic psycho that. So many of our issues are lodged in the armoring of our body. Uh, And until we resolve that armoring, we will continue to have the psychological, you know, overreaction to things, whether it's fight or uh, fight being this or flight, which is coming, turning in on oneself. I found all this fascinating. Um, The European osteopathic community was very accustomed to looking at structure and function. So long story short, I opened a clinic, created a multidisciplinary with PTs, athletic trainers, a few massage therapists, exercise physiologists, and one doctor who's a physiatrist, a doctor of physical medicine, and put together uh, the best of what I could find. And the goal was really to... To, set, to, sit, to take a step back, and that's become a common theme as well, from the problem, carpal tunnel syndrome, sciatica, uh, chronic headaches, whatever, to take a step back from the small diagnosis of pain and to look at chains of events. And we do lip service to this in physical therapy education, but oftentimes we end up, again, scaling down the treatment to the local area of complaint. So I learned that the body is complex. Uh, I do believe there's a somatic psycho feedback loop. I think there's a, I definitely think there's a somato psyche situation going on. There's chemistry that causes bad pain. There's all, there's trauma, uh, you know, that pain itself is very complex. Knowing that, set our therapist free. You would think that it would make them more anxious. But in the therapy arena, what was common is to see somebody and say, to project, I know exactly what's wrong with you, and we've got a protocol for it. And that somehow would make people passive. The patient would become passive in that kind of transaction. And uh, that was typically how our PTs who worked somewhere else before they came to work with us functioned, you know, a very static diagnosis. Uh, and what's cool or complex and challenging is 800 muscles in the body and chains, chains of compensation are highly individualized. So there is no way to protocol this out. So I, we developed a diagnostic plan, a treatment plan that was manual manipulation, and then an exercise plan that looked at the planes that people were deviating from. Planes meaning transverse, coronal, I I get them mixed up, frontal, but there's three. 
and we would begin to individualize uh, active rehabilitation that the patient did on their own. But what was instrumental in what we stood out for, I found out later from talking with a physician who was our lead referral source. He goes to me at breakfast one day, he goes, do you know why you get such good results? And I thought, and I said, I could have come up with a hundred answers. I mean, we're doing stuff nobody's doing. (laughs) He goes, you listen to the patient. And that was critical because what my dad had taught me about co-production, I had put into practice and we had put into practice as a clinic that regardless of how good we are at at charting complexities and how good we were skill-wise with manipulation of the soft tissue, musculoskeletal system, or how good we were at arranging the exact pathway of function in the person's body that led them to biomechanical efficiency again, regardless of any of that, it was listening to people that always gave us the critical information as to, I mean, it was like so many bells would go off. So that was something we did, and and, and that's what the physician said. You listen to people. The challenge in my years, and this carries me up to 2000, the year 2000. You know you're going to hear my life story. (laughs) Uh, The challenge that I ran into in the South, and I say in the South, I probably shouldn't because I hadn't practiced anywhere else, but many people couldn't communicate with us. They were so ingrained in the expert-patient relationship of, here's where I hurt, tell me, uh, fix me. You know, the passivity part. Uh, I'm going to call that communicative agency, and I'll define that a little bit better in a second. They were so well groomed into a passive state that they couldn't or wouldn't, you know, they were unable to participate in this quality of communication, this listening and responding and communicating what happened. The ones that could were amazingly good at helping us figure out, you know, when we were on the right track. And our general rule of thumb, we'd have a lot of people come in and say, I hurt here, what is it? And my stock answer is, we don't know yet. And for some people, that caused red flags. You're like, oh, I need to go somewhere else. (laughs) But for many people, that was like, you're the first person who said that. I'm coming back. And you could could predict those two responses were based on whether they were going to be able to co-produce health with us. Uh, versus wanting us to fix them. So the running into so many people who could not communicate uh, became a burning question in my mind. In 2000, I left that business. Uh, I was truly burned out, but I had gotten interested in personhood and this ability to interpret one's life on multiple levels and what that means to personhood, what it means to community, So I pursued a Ph.D. at Portland State in urban uh, planning and and development and uh, focused on the urban planning area, which was probably a head-scratcher for many people. One of the guys on my dissertation committee said, you know, your dissertation is really about community organizing. Why didn't you just call it community organizing? And uh, it it is. (laughs) It is about community organizing. But fortunately... Narrative is is waking up in urban planners. We're planners to go and 
you know, we keep doing the same old thing over and over. We'll keep, you know, getting a table of people to talk about what we're going to do in this community and the bankers and the developers end up dominating and the people who really live there don't have as much to say. They're unable to communicate effectively in that setting because that communication is set up for rational. Uh, although storytelling is rational, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, so some people theorize that if we turn the planning table into storytelling, it levels the playing field. And now it's about telling stories of meaning and understanding the meaning of a place should drive what we do there and should be able to be co-produced by all the stakeholders, which means it should end up being good for everybody. That's the shouldness or the possibility or the dream. But we're somewhere from that now. We're still negotiating agendas right now. So that's how I got into this area of storytelling. First year in, in urban planning, we've just gone through a whole semester of international community development where one horror story after the next of uh, NGOs coming into an area with an innovative strategy to help a people would be would fall on deaf ears or when the NGO people left would be taken and made into something completely different, the resources molded into something by people who could figure out a way to use whatever those resources were in a way that the NGOs had never imagined. So we, we came across this problem. How do we get, and I'm sitting there after a whole semester going, dang, how do we get to good? <laughs> how do we get to good in development? And I knew it had something to do with communication. I just wasn't sure what kind of communication it required. Uh, it was at that time I read in not the high, not an academic journal, but has anybody heard of Utney Magazine? Besides me, Utney is kind of like Mother Earth, but artsy, <laughs> more artsy. A story about a small town in Georgia called Colquitt, who had put on this play called Swamp Gravy. I read this story, came back to class, and I said, "Hey, I was really excited." <laughs> I figured out, I figured out how we get to good. We get to good by listening to, telling, and responding to stories. Everybody turned around. There was laughter, you know, out the wazoo. I felt like I went to, you know, that small. Uh, no one believed that. And so I kind of walked away from it for a, a year until I found storytelling being theorized by some people and talked about, and that reignited me on this path. So off I went, and I knew I had to study swamp gravy. But before I tell you about swamp gravy, I want to go through four definitions. I keep looking up there hoping it hadn't timed out, so we're lucky. We're in luck. Maybe not. <laughs> I couldn't get this. Some of these definite some of these definitions are too big to go on a PowerPoint, so I'm just going with the the file here. So Let's go through these definitions. These definitions are almost by themselves something you could take. If you, once you understand them, uh, they kind of ripple out into a lot of different directions because they, they are in contrast to a lot of common ideas about uh, what they're talking about, common definitions. So these, these are a little bit deeper definitions, and I, I give you names of sources at the end of every definition. If anybody wants 
specifically where these people, you know, are talking about this idea, email me or, or uh, text message me or something, um, and I'll give you a bibliography of this. But the first one is communicative agency. We hear a lot about agency. Agency is being voiced. But communicative agency, and I'm borrowing from Jurgen Habermas, who is a critical theorist, critical social theorist, who talks about the ideal speech act. Um, If he's right that there is such a thing as an ideal speech act, and that is when someone turns to meaning, they turn to articulate something they believe with their whole being to be true, meaningful and true, which is really telling stories, because to get to meaning, you have to tell stories. That we can do that, it means that the postmodernists who say all we can do is deconstruct each other because we're all after power. If we're all after power, then we should just stop now and walk out the door because this is all meaningless. Uh, But if if Habermas is right, that there is a communicative agency that's more than just voice, but it is interpreting It's interpreting, which is a responsive situation. You're interpreting a situation you're a part of, so it's open. You're opening out to a situation. You're interpreting it. You're verbalizing that. You're listening for response and even altering your initial verbalization. The ideal speech act is something we do to try to get to understanding and truth. So communicative agency, separate, different from Agency is this higher quality of communication. That's why it has communication in front of it. It's not just voice. Everyone can have voice. Everyone can have communication agency. But voice is just me speaking at you and walking away, not expecting to hear anything, not expecting to learn anything more. Uh, that's voice. Communicative, and that's communicative agency is this more reciprocal listening to and responding and altering doesn't mean we agree so we're not getting into the relative thing doesn't mean we have to agree but it means that we believe that when we all do this together we'll all get to an understanding of something uh, but not necessarily agree with its with the conclusions communicative agency that's the first one second a story. Now, we, too ha- we typically hear, in the South especially, I grew up with my mom going, you're telling a story. That means that meant I was lying. You know? uh, so when, and, and we do that. And the Wizard of Oz is my favorite example. The guy behind the screen, uh, he's projecting a story, right? He's projecting a story... <clears throat> And it's not true. He's a propagandist. And Toto pulls the curtain back and now everybody can see. This is a projection. This is not a story at all. It's not true. Um, so there, there are people who tell stories who use tor- stories to deceive. I call that propaganda. Uh, there's another myth to storytelling. But that doesn't mean that true storytelling in the Habermas mode is not possible. Okay. So that's one thing we have to get beyond is the baggage that story has in lying. 
But it does not mean that there's not story in the Habermas tradition of truly trying to tell what something means in a very open and responsive way, as opposed to closed in on yourself and projecting out of that some, an image or something you're trying to convey or convince people about. The second problem with story is, is I hear this from planners a lot. Uh, okay, we'll make room at the table for stories because some people are just emotional and we need to get that out of the way. Uh, Because when we get those emotions and those stories out of the way, we can get about the business of rational urban planning, which is about numbers. And gosh knows, you know, there is no emotion attached to numbers, uh, (laughs) which is untrue. These two are not, they are so joined that you can't separate them. So there's another myth that story has to overcome. Uh, a story involves actor, setting, time, plot, and ending. It's not just someone saying, this is what happened to me. That's not telling a full story. That's not doing interpretation and, and discovery of plot. Stories, since they're incomplete, they're not all equal they are all incomplete. Stories articulate on and with other stories. Martha Nussbaum, if you want to read more, has done a lot on the marriage of rationality, you know, the intertwinement of rationality and emotions. Uh, and Walter Fisher is one of the classic narrative theorists. So one more definition and we'll get to good stories. Community. So all of these are going to play a prominent role in what I'm about to set up in terms of storytelling. Community is really, we in, in urban theory, the classic idea that's been around for 100 plus years about community is, community is the small town and the city is the city. There are technical words for that, it doesn't matter. Uh, so when you go to the small town, you expect to find a community. When you go to the big city, not so much. Uh, we now know Thomas Bender's written the classic book as well as many other researchers over the last 25 years. Even though those notions are still there and they're huge, we know community is not a boundaried space. It's not geographical. It's a quality of experience that includes affection. It's a quality of being with each other to such a degree that you develop an understanding and an, and an affection. So a community, and we use the word all the time, uh, geography is neighborhood. Community is experiential. Okay, And Bender is the first place to start. He unpacks that in an entire book with research and talking about where this came from and why it got so prominent. Uh, <clears throat> it's really a, one, of, one of my foundational books in my dissertation was this idea of community. And that's important because the small town... Colquitt, Georgia, that I did my research on, uh, was one of the places many people would say they have community. It's only 2,000 people in the city, 6,000 in the county. You know, communities there. No wonder they tell stories. But the reality of it is that's not what they said. They agreed with Bender, even though they never heard of him. What they said was, we experience community with each other through listening and telling stories. Until then, we, we didn't feel like we were in a community. We didn't feel like we had community. They said had community. So community 
is a, a quality of beingness. Okay, so those are four critical com- four critical definitions that uh, are prominent in, in the story I'm about to tell about, and I'm going to look at it from three angles. So swamp gravy. <clears throat> Let me stop just for a second and say, are there any questions? Since we're about halfway from when we began, not from the time limit, though. (laughs) I added those nine minutes on. Because I feel like I'm doing all the talking, but maybe I can finish the next part in 15 minutes and then we all can talk. Everybody okay so far? All right. So I went to Colquitt, Georgia from Portland, Oregon to find out what the storytelling experience was about called Swamp Gravy. In 1992, Colquitt in Miller County, if you're looking at Georgia, Miller County's down here. Let's just pretend it's right here. Tallahassee here, Dothan, Alabama there. 6,000 people in the county, 2,000 in the city. Formerly monocrop, I mean, formerly a farming community that over the last 30 years had become... uh, industrialize. So the number of farms shrunk by 300% and the jobs were mechanized. So there were no jobs. The word on the street in Colquitt is, when are you leaving? Where are you going to move? Colquitt was dying. And this had happened to other cities near Colquitt that they're just not there anymore. Small as they are as one town center, then residential and then, you know, rural and farmland. <clears throat> that was the word. Joy Jinks was a social worker in Colquitt, and um, she met a guy named Richard Gere, not the actor. Richard Gere was a PhD director, uh, theater director from Northwestern University, who'd done some prominent work in traditional theater, who had gotten this idea from watching theater transform the actor's who acted these stories, he asked the question, what if we used local stories and volunteer actors? What would it do in terms of transformation? So he did his dissertation on that and was speaking at a conference. And Joy Jinks is in New York City attending this conference for social workers. And she goes, she goes up to Richard Gere in her best Southern accent and said, you need to come with us. <laughs> so she invites Richard down. Ph.D., Richard, uh, larger than life in many ways, comes to this small town to direct them in a storytelling venture. And Richard said, the only thing I'll require is that when we gather the stories, we gather them across all the boundaries, that we're not gathering uh, stories of one group. Well, that was no easy task, but Joy was such a leader figure in the community. She was the head of the Colquitt Miller Arts Council. And uh, these were not your typical Arts Council women. They had a vision for changing their community, not just putting up little art projects. Uh, The Chamber of Commerce and then would butt heads uh, often and a lot. Um, So they gathered stories, created a play, 200 volunteers put on a musical and a play. Hard stories, good stories, created an arc by which there was some resolution in the end. Put in some classic local uh, institutions like Amazing Grace, the song, and 
celebrating those people who've died at, over the past over the past years in part of the play. Extremely meaningful stuff. When the chamber heard about this, they said, "Stop. We tell the story, and the story's good because we got we got to lure people from the outside if we're going to survive." Uh, so they were bent on this outside-in development program that everybody does. But 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 they were resilient. <laughs> Uh, they fought on, and uh, 20-something years later now, every year, every March and every October for that month on the weekends, a new Swamp Gravy play is produced by dozens of volunteers who act, who sing and act, and are behind the scenes to put this on. It's gotten tremendous notoriety. They've been to the Kennedy Center. They performed at the Olympics in Atlanta. Uh, it was huge. It resurrected the town somewhat, smallly economically, but not totally. But they didn't think they were poor anymore because once they saw each other in their stories, they saw persons rather than deficiencies. And they, they saw who a person was rather than status and role. And more than anything, they fell in love because when you see a person you can fall in love. You can't fall in love with a status and role or a deficiency or a victim. Uh, and love ends up being that missing link in urban planning because we can't make people want to redistribute. So the urban planners, while this is going on in Conkwood, urban planners are going, okay, we got to have people and we got to have people recognize all the stakeholders. That's hurdle number one that everyone has a stake in what's going on, not just the banker and developer. Hurdle number two it has to be some kind of meaningful encounter. We don't know what that is. I think it's storytelling. Uh, that meaningful encounter has to be deep enough that it creates affection because without affection, redistribution and planning resources in such a way that's to everybody's benefit and good uh, can't happen. So this is this theory is bubbling up alongside, and I'm over here in Conquit looking between these two, going, I think I think we're seeing something here in Conquit that's demonstrating this. It was not an easy task. When I say that these things happened, uh, not without fights. You know, twenty something years later, only a third of the residences in the residents in Miller County have ever attended a Swamp Gravy play which is amazing because tickets are oftentimes distributed through churches, made to be free, so it's not a matter of cost. Uh, early pushback was the fear of having something as critical as your heritage be co-produced by multiple stories, meaning white stories, not just white stories, but African-American stories too. That's, that challenged a lot of people who, we're not going in there. <laughs> We know we we go in there. We have to give up something that that win lose thing that they win and we lose that their stories become a part of our heritage too. The cool thing is because they do new stories every year. That heritage is never complete. It continues to bubble up because what do we know about heritage and social phenomena? It's fluid and emergent. So uh, that's the swamp gravy. Story. Lots of outcomes, relationships, um, innovation, 
community development, entrepreneurship, even some financial income from people who come to watch the plays. So I want to track down to the individual level, and then I'll stop. Three people, or two people. Veronica Hare, in 1992, is an African-American woman who everyone thought she was mentally challenged. Um, It turns out she wasn't mentally challenged at all. And Veronica's mom and Joy Jinks, Joy not knowing anything about what Veronica Hare, who she was or what she could do, either one of those, they're not always the same, convinced Veronica Hare to audition for the first Swamp Gravy. And Veronica Hare ends up having the voice of, like, Mahalia Jackson. And the acting sense and timing of any professional you would ever see. She was amazing. I mean, she just bloomed right there on stage. And she became a person of value in this community. And you could see her go from a person who everyone thought was mentally challenged to now someone who's a pillar of the cult of the, of the community. So much so that when backroom politics in Conquit decided that some of the land in Veronica's neighborhood would be set aside for uh, a prison, uh, the, the Conquit Swamp Gravy people heard and the, the word got out from the planning committee all the way to Veronica Hare because they now had a sense of community amongst each other and they were communicating. Before Swamp Gravy, that would have happened without anybody having a chance to, to say anything. So Veronica shows up at the planning meeting that no one ever goes to along with a bunch of people from Swamp Gravy and she gets up and has a come to Jesus meeting with a planning committee. Uh, she acts as if she is, you know, she is Jesus. <laughs> and, and she's got the whip and she's driving the Pharisees out of the temple or the money changers out of the temple. Uh, and they back down. So this idea of health, we would have looked at Veronica here in terms of support systems uh, or medication or who knows what. But community, the experience of being a valued member of community, singing and performing, having friends, crossing boundaries. You know, we saw the birth of a person uh, right there, literally in everyone's eyes. Mikhail Bakhtin is a narrative theorist who says, we only see a person when we see them in their stories. Uh, If you really want to know a person, you have to see them in their stories. And that's what was happening in Colquitt. Person number two, <clears throat> Craig Tully. Craig Tully was the he was the head of the volunteer fire department, which is big in Conquit. That's a big deal. And Craig, when he found out what was going on, just like the chamber, he goes, "This is the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. We're going to do a we're going to do a play. You know, we need to be getting business from the outside." And he was a huge critic. Uh, one of the ones who didn't, he, he wasn't upset about race as much as just the value of this. What are we going to learn from this that's going to help us with anything? Uh, so we never came. The, the fire department's across the street from the theater, and uh, Veronica Hare's son would come over and hang out at the fire department. And they, and 
So Veronica Hare's son and Craig got to be good friends. He called Emmanuel Hare Shadow because he followed Craig everywhere. That was about the extent of Craig's tie to Swamp Gravy. He would have never known Emmanuel without that. But someone fell. They're having a performance, and someone in the audience fell, and they call Craig, and they said, you got to come get this guy with a gurney. Craig goes over to get the guy with a gurney, loads him up, and the guy says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not going anywhere until this is over. So Craig had to sit through the Swamp Gravy. So the next Sunday morning, Craig gets up at the Free Will Baptist Church and confesses that he was wrong, that Swamp Gravy is the most important thing we do uh, in this community. So I later interviewed Craig. I said, why, why is Swamp Gravy important? What's important? He goes, because when we listen to our stories, we understand what is good that we can build on. Uh, without that, we, we end up falling for a lot of stuff that's supposed to get us, that's supposed to be the, the fix to our deficiencies. And he almost says this in these kinds of words. I mean, I'm not, I'm not embellishing this very far at all. He said, we do this because we get to good. It's the way we get to good. It's the way we know what is good that we're going to build on. So Craig went on to apply some of the information uh, that he learned from Swamp Gravy in a variety of ways. When Veronica Hare died, he actually uh, adopted, I don't think it was a literal adoption, but he adopted Emmanuel. Emmanuel was practically, by now, Craig's son, just because Emmanuel never left the fire department, uh, which is a story in and of itself. And, uh, uh, and then Craig adopted you know, swamp gravy. So between the two, you know, he and Emmanuel were like this. And um, to this day, you know, they're like father and son. So in seeing these amazing outcomes, one of the questions that plagued me after I did the research was community is really important to interpretation, uh, to health, it's important for us to understand what's good that we can build on. How can we, and again, I'm looking at Colquitt from being in Portland, Oregon, and I'm thinking, how can we speed the people? And this, I'm, I'm really didn't think this to this extent, but I'm, this is a confessional. How can we speed them up? How can we get them eating well and doing all these things? That, you know, how do we capitalize on this moment? And for me to say, here's what we're doing in Portland. It's too big. It's too big of a gap uh, to come in and use technical language for, you know, how we want to treat diabetes, obesity, all these things. Because all these things are also connected to economics and they're they're broad-reaching factors, uh, far-reaching arms and legs to them. So after coming in and actually introducing people to some things that might speed the process of taking advantage of this formation of community or experience of community so that we can continue to grow and address some of the deficiencies, uh, I would present people ideas and it would just kind of roll off the table onto the floor. So it, I, I stood back and I thought, what can I learn from Swamp Gravy that can enable me to be better at facilitating change or being a catalyst for a new vision. 
So I did what Swamp Gravy does. I found a story that talked about a party in 1865 where it was before industrial ag. They had variety of foods, not monocrop, varieties of stuff. They had white and African-American people in the same party as reported by the Bainbridge News. This is 1865. Uh, the Bainbridge News said, called the African-Americans Fifteenth uh, Amendments. Uh, there were that was their way of saying they're African Americans there. So they had swamp. This was really swamp gravy. Swamp gravy was about diversity. Swamp gravy is about when you take your stories that you think are throwaways, like food that's throwaway. You put them in a pot. You put them on a stage. Put the throwaways in a pot, and it turns into a feast. You put these throwaway stories on a stage, and it turns into a feast. So we found this metaphor for swamp gravy in 1865, but the food was produced organically. I mean, it was real food. And uh, there was something I could work with. I couldn't come in and say, you need guys need to be farming organically. You need to throw away the monocrop stuff and do... It was there and there. It was a cultural artifact in their own history. So with that, I introduced, after that, the documentary Fresh, if you haven't seen it, you must see it, Will Allen in Milwaukee, who's an African-American who's got three acres in Milwaukee doing some of the most wildest tilapia farming and greens and permaculture stuff. And, and urban people are coming there and eating, and they're not going, we ought to eat this because we want to be healthier. They're going, this is amazingly good food. This is good. This tastes great. He wins them over. Joel Salatan in Virginia is a permaculture farmer. He's in fresh. He's not that different from the people in Caulkwood. He's a country guy, uh, as is the third person they use in the documentary. I showed the documentary in Caulkwood at one of their conferences, you know, set up by the 1865 feast. Showed that documentary. And then when the documentary was over, I said, there's a guy in the neighboring county in Blakely, 20 miles down the road, who's doing grass-fed beef farming, farming cattle, grass-fed, sells his stuff to Whole Foods. His name's Harris, Harris Farms. And he's an example of, of 1865, this documentary fresh. He's right here. And I walked away. That was four years ago. This past year, and I thought, that just fell on deaf ears. That's not going anywhere. It's not going to lead to anything. This past year, when they announced the Building Creative Communities Conference that they produce once a year, where they do a swamp gravy and then they talk for two days about how do we get to good community development. It was about food. And uh, I can't remember the guy's first name, but Harris was one of their top three speakers. <laughs> so I was like, Wow. You just see the vision, you see the vision, you use cultural artifact, you play on the goodness of food, and then you use a local example, and you sit back, and those seeds will grow. And that's what they did. This year it's about food, community gardens. The health aspect of it is there, but it's really more about this is what food really is, which is the main story in Fresh. Uh, this is real food. What we've been eating in the past has been low-density, high-calorie cal high, high, uh, stuff, which is kind of ground zero for a lot of stuff we suffer with today.
So I'm going to stop there. We have about 15 minutes. That's some of the reasons I think we've got about 12 minutes to talk. I, I don't like talking that much, but I'm excited about the message. I think storytelling is this brilliant way of uh, discovering you know, what is good that we can build on. And I will finish my part with saying in academics, the rise of qualitative and the marriage of qualitative with quantitative and mixed methods brings a lot of this kind of hope to the table. Uh, there is a, if anybody wants to see, I found this is online, qualitative versus quantitative. If, if anybody wants this, it, it tracks this same kind of theme of uh, we start with story, uh, not with an end point that we're getting to. But quantitative and qualitative don't have to dominate. They need to marry. They need to co-produce. They need to learn how to work together so that we can really uh, get to good in a thorough and full way. So any comments, questions, feedback? Well, the next thing, because I learned a little bit from doing that seeding of vision, um, I want to create a study circle institute that all it does is take things like fresh, things that are done well, where the goodness of it kind of is, sets the stage, even though there's health aspects of it or economic benefits to it or whatever. I want to I want to put that in a community and let that function on a monthly basis for a couple of years. And when vision organizes around something that people want to do because of what they've seen, then help them find the funding. But when vision organizes that way, it is an organic process. And when you go to seek funding for a conversation that happened organically, it's a lot easier than the normal way of going, okay, there's a grant. Uh, here's some people I can, you know, drag into this with me. They need this. There's the money. I get a little bit, and we try to, you know, fix something over here. I really think that a getting to good institute in Colquitt that just brings good stuff to, the, to, to vision to people to watch and see what other people are doing that's really good, I don't want them to copy it. I just want them to start understanding what really, what's, when something's good, it's good because it's socially just, it's economically viable, and it's environmentally conscious, you know, that it's multiple things. Because most people have bought into the trade-off that to have economic viability, we got to trade on social, we got to trade off justice, and we don't. We don't have to do that. So I think if you show people that on a monthly basis, that'll catalyze the very thing that happened with, with Fresh uh, in that one instance. That's what I want to see next is just establish that kind of a getting to good institute in a local space, in a local neighborhood or community. I did work with a church group in Birmingham that, and it was a getting to good process that went two years. And I, I, I had to bite my tongue. I had to resist the temptation to say, we ought to do this. Or, and I really let them learn. 
that it's possible to do multiple bottom line things collaboratively and all that. And out of that came a time bank and a community farmer's market that they launched. Uh, and in the process of doing an industrial kitchen that would allow them to um, provide the space where about a, a number of food carts do their work. In Birmingham, you have to have an industrial kitchen. You can't operate out in order to have a food cart. So you've got to have a brick-and-mortar industrial kitchen. So that's our third project. But that's in the early stages. Um, and there was one other than that where people got so excited about the stuff we were they had decided to do, which was in Oregon. It was about pollution, air pollution. They'd figured out a way, learn from NASA that if you put plants and a fan that runs, it's a long story, it's a way of a little bitty pl fan that sucks 32 cubic feet of air a minute through the root system of a plant with activated carbon, you get clean air at that rate in a room. It's a highly polluted area. We had experimented with this. They had gotten excited about it. So when I wrote the grant, you know, I wasn't trying to drag someone. We were already doing this. They were doing it with children. It's teenagers in the high school in one of the most polluted areas in the country. And it's hard to believe Portland is that, but it, there, there's a neighborhood that's in the bottom 1% for air pollution for schools. And when we, when we told them in the grant what the students were already doing with this project and that they wanted to build on it, we asked for 35000 They gave us fifty. Wow, you know, when when you activate something, you know, from vision, it it self-energizes, but it also is that thing the funders want to see. They're tired of funding, you know, something that the expert has conceived of and is trying to start. You know, this had already been started. So, yeah, I think that's the one you were talking about. Anybody see this as useful? Is it? New? Is it old? Is it hopeful? Is it crazy? It's challenging to let the end result, and, and oftentimes the end results, we don't know what, in this kind of a process, you really don't know what all is going to happen. So it's different. We usually are trying to prescribe what we want to happen and then backing up from that. And this is the opposite of that. And it's hard to win that kind of a argument because we've been doing the other for so long. And we've been doing the same thing in urban planning for so long, too. It's hard for urban planners to go, okay, we're going to tell stories now. It's very challenging to the mindset. Well, and I think, you know, from an advocacy perspective and a policy <coughs> perspective, like the stories that move policy, especially in South Carolina versus empirical evidence, but I think, you know, we talked some about this at lunch, but it's like the, I think the goal for a lot of people is how do you tell the most tragic story possible? So to me, it's more how do you get people to appreciate the positive stories and see value in that versus trying to kind of have this competition of let's identify the person who has yeah. the worst story to tell about lack of access to health care. Yeah. That's what's going to 
Boy, it's, you know, I worked with a nonprofit that wanted me to do a video about their work in inner city Birmingham. And when I showed their board and I didn't show the rundown houses around the soccer field where the kids were learning to play soccer, they were like, this isn't going to win. You know, we want to show the deficit, the devastation in this community. And I said, but what's the community going to get from that? Community is going. So I showed, I interviewed parents and the parents spoke about the meaningfulness of the program. We never showed the rundownness of the neighborhood. And when it, and it was a challenge because the, the people wanted to show this victim tragedy deficit thing. That's what, that doesn't sustain donors that may get a one-time donation. It doesn't sustain donors, but it doesn't do anything for the identity of the community that is, it doesn't show who they really are. It shows you just this reduced worst case scenario of who they are, but it's tempting. And we, and we, we see, I, I get that from nonprofits all the time, who it's second nature just to go with a victim uh, approach to policy or whatever it is. Well, we've, we've used up the hour. Thank you for letting me be uh, add on those 10 minutes uh, or 11. I'm, I'm like, I have this clock. I just feel like it, you know, one hour. But uh, it's been great being here. Jason and um, it's been I've enjoyed everybody and uh, last night and today has been awesome so thank you so much for inviting me